Well, happy Resurrection Sunday to you all. I know this is not uh, how most of us envision this particular Sunday. It's certainly not how we're used to celebrating. Uh, many of us aren't wearing our nicer clothes. We are probably sitting in your living room in your pajamas. Uh, a lot of us aren't planning to get together with other friends or family. And a lot of other traditions won't be unfolding today uh, that we're used to. Uh, but in as much as that's true, here's what I would encourage you and just want to remind us of this morning is that while the ways in which we celebrate will look different this year, what we celebrate has not changed. Because Jesus is still risen from the grave. And he is still victorious over sin and death. And he is still offering hope and life to all who believe and follow him. And so we can still celebrate because Jesus is still victorious. Because that has not changed. And so because of that, what we want to do, we want to open our Bibles. So if you have a Bible, get it out. Turn to John chapter 20. If you've got your Bible on your device, you can pull that up. I guess if you have a really good memory, uh, you can run with that. But in John chapter 20, we come to this text that, that, that is about the resurrection of Jesus. It's reminding us of his victory over sin and death. In fact, what we're going to see in the text this morning, really the main idea, uh, if you will, of what we're going to uh, come across is this right here, that the resurrection is Jesus' declaration of victory over sin and death, and that new life for the believer has begun. Let me say that again. The resurrection is Jesus' declaration of victory over sin and death, uh, and that new life for the believer has begun. Now, now when we talk about that new life, that's a really uh, critical or important thing. And, and so let me just say that that is afforded only to those who are in Christ, right? This is not some universal statement that as long as I've heard it, it applies to me. The new life is for those who surrender their lives, entrust their lives to Jesus and follow him. And so this morning, as we look at John chapter 20, here's the title of our message. It's resurrecting belief, resurrecting belief. Now, now there's really a duality of meaning uh, to, to that title. And I think it really captures the continuum of where people find themselves uh, as we approach uh, the story of Jesus' resurrection on this Easter Sunday. For, for some of you, maybe over here, uh, when you think about the resurrection, you're, you're, you're excited about the resurrection. You believe in the resurrection. So, so, so you have a belief in the resurrection that you're excited about. But if you maybe move to the other side of the continuum, uh, your faith, your belief is on life support or maybe it's even dead. And so what you need is to have that belief resurrected here uh, today, this morning. What I would say to, to wherever you find yourself on that continuum is that God has a word for us here this morning. Uh, and as we look at John 20... Uh, really, there are four distinct scenes that unfold in this text. So if you've ever been to a play or if you've been to Broadway or some kind of production, you understand how this works, right? Each scene is distinct and they, and they uh, are unique. Uh, but when you put them together, they're telling a unified story. And that's what's unfolding here in uh, John 20. So we want to look at each of the scenes uh, with respect to what they're telling us, but then put it together in the unified story that is unfolding this glorious, wonderful, and stunning uh, drama of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So with that, let's get in here. I'll look at the verse 10 verses of John chapter 20, scene one, if you will. And you could title it this way, a shocking revelation. There's an empty tomb. 
right? There's a shocking revelation. There's an empty tomb. And of course, the implication of this is that Jesus is alive. Now, the disciples and Mary aren't fully aware of that yet, although they're going to come uh, to that conclusion quite quickly. Uh, before I read, I, I just want us to keep in mind that the setting for this uh, is not the celebratory, joyous sense uh, that we tend to have on this morning, right? The, the setting is one of death and burial, right? That's why Mary is making her way to the tomb, right? And to put this whole thing in, in, in context, this is really a, an incredibly somber and grief-stricken moment that's unfolding uh, for Mary. And, and what's shocking is only a week prior to this, that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, serenaded with the praise and the acclaim of the entire community. And now he's dead. Well, he's actually not dead at this moment, but he'd been dead the night before. And as far as Mary's concerned, uh, he's dead. But that's helpful for us to keep in mind because for her and the disciples, their hopes, their dreams, their desires, their plans have been absolutely shattered. And that's the frame of mind that, that Mary is, uh, is approaching the tomb. She's there to mourn. She's there to anoint and, and maybe just trying to wrap her mind around all of this. So let's get into the text here uh, and see the shocking revelation. And we're told this. It starts by saying this. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Right? Can you see her walking along the road? Uh, maybe just uh, the, the, the dawn of day beginning to break, but still quite dark. And she looks up and what does she see? She saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so she's walking. She looks up and you can almost see her just stop dead in her tracks. What happened? Right? Like what is going on here? And so notice what it says in verse 2. <clears throat> It says, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Uh, and we believe that's John. He's just using a literary device here and said to them. So you just see her racing back to the disciples and she gets to like, guys, right? Just out of breath, guys. And here's what she says. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. And you can almost see Peter and John kind of look at each other, right? Like this. And boom, they're out the door, right? Because it says in verse 3, they went out with... Uh, so Peter went out with the other disciple. And they were going toward the tomb. And then I love this. If you're competitive, you can appreciate verse 4. Uh, both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, right? As John is writing this, he wants his readers to know, just in case you're wondering, I was faster than Peter. And you can almost kind of see him, uh, even if he only beats him by a couple seconds, kind of standing up against the side of the tomb, like, hey, man, what took you so long? Like, where you been? Right? And, and just that sense of, hey, I got here first. Uh, but Peter blows right past him. Uh, right? John, in verse 5, he stoops to look in. And he sees the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in, right? He, uh, for whatever reason, he's like, I'm not going. But uh, Peter, verse 6, came following him and went into the tomb. And notice what he sees. He sees the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And so they look in and they see these linen cloths. Now, a couple of things that we want to note here just real quick. Uh, first of all, as we move through this chapter, there's all kinds of deep, rich symbolism uh, that John is drawing out of this. Uh, and so we're going to see multiple examples of this. And I think the first is actually with these linen cloths. And, and part of what John is doing is he's wanting to contrast. Remember back in chapter 11, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and Lazarus comes out and he's still enshrouded in all of those uh, linen cloths. And yet here with Jesus, what, what happened? <laughs> They've all been taken off. 
Why is that significant? Well, I think it's significant and maybe even symbolic for the fact that Jesus is completely freed from any connection or any change to the grave or to death, right? It's symbolic for his total and complete victory over sin and death. And further, uh, right, that this gives us confidence in the certainty of Christ's resurrection. Uh, because part of these linen cloths are an apologetic against false theories that happened to Jesus. So, so one of the theories uh, that you'll find out there, like, hey, what really happened to Jesus? Well, he rose from the dead. That's what happened. But, right? There's other theories that are out there. And one of which is that uh, th- there were grave robbers. Okay, question. If you're robbing a grave of a dead, rotting corpse, why would you unwrap it from the only thing that's masking its stench? And further, if you're robbing the grave, don't you think you'd be doing that quickly? And you wouldn't really worry about taking that stuff off? Just doesn't make sense, right? This gives us confidence in Jesus' resurrection. And so as you look at the empty tomb, uh, you look at these uh, the, the, the wraps and the linen cloths uh, being there. They're all pointing to Jesus being alive. And so verse 8, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, right? John again wants us to know I'm faster than Peter. Uh, Also went in and he saw and believed. And that that could be translated, he began to believe, which would help us understand verse 9 when it says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So I I don't think John is going, oh, I know Jesus has risen from the dead. I think the light bulb's starting to come on for him. And he's starting to go, wait a second. That that there's something more that's going on than just the, the, the tomb is empty. And as, as surprising all, as all of this is, maybe the most shocking thing of all in these first 10 verses is what we see in verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes. You're like, wait, what? Why would you go home at a moment like this? I mean, it's shocking. Why, why would they do this? And to be honest, we don't totally know. We don't totally know why they would choose to do this. Uh, and, and there's a few different purposes that could be served by this. Here's one that I think is critical and, and it's worthy of us mentioning. It is that in them going home, it reminds us that Jesus is the one that pursues us. We don't pursue Jesus. He is the one who pursues us. Because if there was ever a time for them to go look for Jesus, this would be the time, would it not? Right? Like, hey, he was dead, but now he's not in the grave. Let's go see if we can find him. And they're like, nah, let's go home. Because Jesus is the one who will initiate and come to them in the same way that he initiated in coming to earth, in the same way that he's initiating with you and I to save and to restore and to reconcile us to God. See, this is true for all of us. Even right now, in this moment, that Jesus is the one that's initiating with you. Do you know that, loved one? Jesus is initiating with you. He's pursuing you. He's chasing after you. You and I don't first chase him. He first chases us and invites us into the fullness of life that's found in him. My question is, will you choose to follow him? He's pursuing you Will you choose to follow him. And this first scene, the tomb is empty. He's alive. What are you going to do with that? Because there are major implications, major ramifications, uh, no matter what we choose to do with it. Uh, but we have to do something with this. There's a shocking revelation that tomb is empty because Jesus is alive. And moving then from scene one to scene two, look at verses 11 through 18. We see our second scene unfolding in this drama. And you could summarize it this way. Uh, there's a stunning encounter. And in that stunning encounter, there is a better reality. 
And the better reality is this, that Jesus is our eternal Savior. Right? Let me just emphasize the eternality, right? The, 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 the totality, the complete, for all of time, that Jesus is our eternal Savior. So uh, John and Peter go home, which leaves Mary alone in the garden. So let's pick it up in verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, right? She's just not ready to go back, uh, still mourning, whatever it is. She's there alone outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. So, so she's like, well, let me look in again. And this time when she stoops down to look into the tomb, what does she see? Look at verse 12. As she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet and again, we've talked about some of the deep symbolism that exists in this a particular account, in this text. And I think here in these next couple of verses, probably the two most prominent uh, examples of symbolism or illusion that John is using to help us understand the totality of this begin to unfold. Uh, so look at verse 11 and 12, and let's just talk for a moment about the symbol of the angels. Right? That, that yes, the angels are there. But notice how John goes to great lengths to tell us where the angels were located. Right in verse 12, he tells us, right, one was at the head and one was at the feet. Why does John want us to know this? I think what John is trying to do is he's trying to create a connection. He's trying to allude to the mercy seat that was part of the ark of the covenant. And you might be saying, what is that? Well, remember the Ark of the Covenant, that's where the presence of God was uh, in, in Old Testament Israel. And, and that, that was constructed shortly after they'd come out of uh, the slavery and the bondage of Egypt. And they constructed the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark was the mercy seat. And on, on the both ends of that were two angels. And in the middle of the mercy seat, uh, that was the place uh, where, where they believed God's presence was. But that was also the place where God would atone for sin. Right? But what the people understood, when you talked about the mercy seat, they're like, oh, that's the place where people get forgiven. That's where atonement happens. Right, that, that, that's where sin and rebellion get addressed and dealt with by God. And I think what John's doing here in John 20 is he's helping us to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the total sacrifice for sin. That Jesus is actually a better mercy seat. That he's the total, complete sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath. Once and for all against sin. And so no more sacrifice is needed because it has been handled and dealt with by Jesus. Jesus is the manifestation and Jesus is the embodiment of the saving power and presence of God. See, he's the hope of the resurrection. Right? He's the hope that we have in the resurrection. And I would argue with you that, that, that the hope that we have in Jesus is not simply that he lives, although there's a lot of hope in that. And the hope uh, isn't simply that we live, although there's also a lot of hope in that. I would argue that the hope is also tied in how we live. Mike, what do you mean by that? Here's, here's what I mean by that. It's not only that you and I can live, but how we live, that we live as people who are forgiven that, we're, that, that our sin is paid for, that it's settled, that it's dealt with, and that this is true for all of time, right? That this can't be brought back against me at a future date. I can't be reminded of my failure three years from now because it's been settled, it's been dealt with. So I don't ever have to wonder 
if this is later going to get revealed or exposed or I'm going to get busted or outed or, or be shown to be some kind of fraud or liar or inadequate because Jesus has covered our sin and our failure once and for all. It is finished. It's forgiven. It's cleansed. It's done. Let me try to illustrate what I'm saying here. You ever tried to hide something? Like something bad. So some of you are like, you're, you're just better people than I am, right? You want to hide a surprise or a gift. Yeah, I, I don't really hide those things. But I, certainly when you think about hiding something bad, you ever try to do that? Whether it's a lie or something that's broken or whatever it is. Um, now, I don't know about you, but I think about trying to hide something. Uh, I, I spent a lot of my childhood breaking things. Uh, not necessarily intentionally, but that's just what happened over and over again, uh, is, is that things would get uh, broken. And so I can remember one particular time, I'm probably eight, nine years old. I can't remember exactly what it was, but I was mad and I'm lying on my bed. And so in my anger and my frustration, I just reach out and I kick the wall. And then as soon as I did that, I had that sinking feeling uh, that as my heel plunged through the drywall uh, and into the other side where it's like, oh, no. Now I'm really in trouble. So, right, I'm eight, nine years old, and I'm like, well, I don't want to get busted for this. And so what do I do? And so I'm trying to figure it out. And this was the brilliant idea that I came up with. I went and grabbed all the old team photos from different sports teams that I've been on, you know, like uh, baseball or, or soccer or whatever it was, basketball. And I, and I put them all up on the wall to cover the hole. And, and so, so uh, you know, thinking like, hey, that's not a bad idea. My mom comes in, and she kind of looks at that. She's like, what's that? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I just... I just didn't want to forget my teammates from my previous sports teams because, you know, memory loss at eight is a real thing. Uh, now, I think my mom knew in that moment something was going on, but she, she kind of let me run down the road for a little bit on that. And, and what's going on when you have a situation like that? What's going on the whole time in your mind? Right? You know you're guilty and, and you're trying to hide it. And what you're hoping, hoping, hoping is that you don't get out it or busted. Now, over time... If you can continue to hide things, that begins to subside with people. Uh, but at what point in time do you ever fool God? You don't ever fool God. Nothing gets past him. You don't hide things from him. You don't keep things from him. There's nothing, nothing, nothing that God hasn't seen. And so here's how this plays out in connection with the mercy seat. Right? People oftentimes will live with this sense that, that um, God knows who I really am, which is true. And it's only a matter of time before he's going to bust me or he's going to out me or he's going to expose who I really am. And so just, just wait. But at some point in time, what's going to come out is that God is going to reveal who I, who I really am. And what I would argue with you, loved ones, is that the resurrection and this allusion to the mercy seat and what Jesus is doing on our behalf changes that. See, because it changes not only the fact that I live, but also how I live. Because if you are in Christ, you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that you don't have your righteousness, you have the righteousness of Jesus. That it's been placed upon you. Right? So, so you don't have to strive to be good. God gives you his goodness in place of your sin and your rebellion. So, so now I don't live in fear of my past sin or failures. Now I'm not wondering at what time do I get outed by God because I have the righteousness of God covering me. I'm cleansed. It's been dealt with. It can't come back to haunt me. This is what 2 Corinthians 5 tells us. He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so let me just ask you, who are you? 
But just think about that. Who, who are you? Who am I? Are you a sinner who's guilty before God just waiting to be outed? Or are you one who's covered by the righteousness of Jesus? You're freed from your past sin and rebellion. And not only are you granted life, right? Not just that you live, but you are able to live freely, right? How you live because it's covered and dealt with. And the only way, the only way that you and I get this is in surrendering our lives to Jesus, right? To confess our sin, to submit ourselves to Christ, to live not for ourselves, but for him. And in that, not only are we granted eternal life in duration, but we're granted eternal life in the quality of how we live. So we have the symbol of the angels, this incredible uh, depiction that, that, that God is drawing out for us. But notice also this. Look at verse 13 through 16, because there's a second symbol uh, that we see here. Uh, and the text continues. It says this, verse 13. They said to her, this is the angels, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. And for some reason, she turns away from the angels, verse 14, and she turned around and saw Jesus standing. I mean, what a moment, right? Except she doesn't realize it's Jesus. And that's what it says. She did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, verse 15, same thing the angels asked, woman, why are you weeping? And then he asked the second question, whom are you seeking? It's a loaded question. And then we're told this, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, can you see him in this moment? And probably with the tenderness, but also a firmness, just says her name, Mary. And it all clicks, right? Like in that moment, it's like, it's him. It's really him, right? And she, she turns and says to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Let's just talk here for a moment about this second symbol, the symbol of the gardener. Uh, but actually, before I even talk about that, let me just make two brief comments, two brief notes that I think are helpful for us. Uh, first of all, I want you to make note of this. Make note, first of all, of this, that Jesus calls Mary by her name. Like, yeah, why, why, why is that important? Here, here's why this is important. Because Jesus is a personal God. Jesus is not some distant, disinterested God. He's a personal God, right? He's a deeply personal God. He, not only does he know Mary's name, he knows your name. And what that really means is he knows everything about you because he's invested and interested in his people. And at one level, you're like, man, that's beautiful. And that's incredible. And then at another level, you're like, wait, he knows everything. It's kind of terrifying, isn't it? Except this. He already knows it all, and he still chooses to set his love upon us. What an incredible truth that is. Right? So he calls her by name. But then make note of this as well. That for Mary, it's as she hears Jesus speaking. That's what leads to her belief. It's not that she sees him. Now we get to the disciples here in scene three and four. They're going to get that benefit. It's, and she's seeing him, but not identifying him. But it's her hearing him that leads to belief. And that's what the Bible tells us. Romans 10 is very clear that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Right now, you are hearing the word of God. And I wonder, by God's grace, is that leading you to a place of belief and trust and hope in Jesus as you hear his words? We can only hope uh, that such an incredible result would come. But let me, let me just touch on the symbol of the gardener here for a moment. 
Mary believes Jesus is the gardener. She doesn't identify him as Jesus. And again, I think this is another symbol or another illusion that John is using. And you might say, why is this significant? Why would that be something worthy of, 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 of talking about? Um, and I think what John's actually doing here is he's making an allusion back to the Garden of Eden. Because you have a lot of the same things that are unfolding in this moment. Just consider here for a moment. Let's go back to Eden, right? In Eden, what do you have? You have a woman and you have a questioner. Now in Eden, the questioner is the serpent. Uh, But the context uh, that surrounds this woman and the questioner is there is this perfect life and vitality, right? And the questioner uh, becomes the source of grief and death. And in that moment, life and vitality is shattered. Humanity is plunged into sin and death. And here in John 20, I think this is the great reversal. right? Because you have the same characters, if you will. But it's a complete reversal of what has happened. Unlike Eden, where you have perfect life and you're plunged into sin and death. Now you have a woman and you have a questioner. But the context for the woman is not perfect life. What is it? It's grief and death. And the questioner here is not going to be the source of grief and death. He's going to be the solution to grief and death. He's going to be the source of hope and life, right? There's this reversal of of the garden and what had happened there. And part of the beauty of what's unfolding is this even reveals God's intent from the very beginning to restore humanity. That fateful day in Eden wasn't the last word. It's this day in this garden that will be the last word that Jesus has conquered death and that he's conquered sin and he's restored what he told us he would all the way back in Genesis 3. This beautiful portrait of what God is doing. From the very beginning, God intended to restore this great reversal where Satan plunged humanity into sin and death. And of course, Adam and Eve are certainly complicit and guilty in the same way that you and I are. Jesus now is raising them out of sin and death into hope and life. What an incredible word. And you'd think, man, this is, this is amazing. Um, and yet notice verse 17. Verse 17 is maybe equally shocking. Mary coming to realize, hey, this is Jesus you can almost see her running to him, maybe throwing her arms around like, I can't believe it's you. And, and then look at verse 17. Here's what it says. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. You can almost see him grabbing her by the shoulders and kind of putting her back at arm's length. No, no, don't cling to me. Like, what? What are you doing here? Like, like, why would he say, don't cling to me? Well, look at what he says next. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your father, to my God, and to your God. See, what's unfolding in verse 17 is the hope of eternity. This is the hope of eternity. And Jesus' response might feel kind of like a bucket of cold water getting dumped on Mary and maybe even on us as we're reading this. But in reality, uh, Jesus is giving us the hope of eternity. In fact, make note of two things here around the hope of eternity. First of all, this, that there is a better reality, and that reality is eternity. So, so, so uh, Jesus is leading Mary to understand that something far greater than him simply being back from the dead is available to her. And by extension, it's available to us. Right? It's not just that Jesus is alive, but he's going to ascend to the Father. He's going to go live in the perfect harmony and, 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 and unity that exists in all of eternity. But it's available to us as well. You say, Mary, there's something better. There's something far better That's available. In fact, here's the conclusion. 
of that, if you were to flip over to Revelation chapter 21, it's literally the last page or second to last page in your Bible. This is the better reality that God describes. Let me read it to you here. I'm going to start in verse three, talking about the new heaven and the new earth. It says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Listen to what he says. Now you, you tell me, uh, would you rather have what we currently have or would you rather have this? He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. But he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. All right, you read that, and you're like, man, would I rather have this COVID-invested earth, or would I rather have that? And I think part of what Jesus is trying to express to Mary here is he's saying, let go of your human-sized Jesus so you can grab a hold of the God-sized Jesus that's being offered to you. Right? We're being taught that something far better is available. Loved ones, why would we cling to this world when a far greater and a far more glorious eternity is being offered to us? Right? The presence of God, free from sin, free from suffering, free from pain, free from death. Like, why would we cling to this when that's available? I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's a fool's errand to try to hold on to this. C.S. Lewis says it well, a great uh, British author, uh, when he talks about us being far too easily pleased. He talks about us choosing mud pies in a slum when an offer of a holiday at the sea is available to us. That's what we do when we choose to hold on to, to, to the lesser of our current existence at the expense of grabbing a hold of the far greater reality that's found in eternity. And Jesus is telling Mary, listen, there's a better reality. Don't cling to me. Don't cling to this. You're, you're going to be able to ascend to the Father. That's what you want to hold on to. Eternity will be better, but we have to surrender to Jesus and to his will and to his plan and to his leading and to his prompting to fully experience this. And so there's a better reality of eternity. Um, And here's how it's manifested. Look at the second half of verse 17. Notice that Jesus refers to the disciples as his brothers. And he tells Mary, I'm ascending to my father and to your father and to my God and to your God. See, we see not only this better reality of eternity, but we we see that we're adopted into God's family. That's how it's expressed. That we're brought into, that we're adopted into God's family. And when we're brought into God's family, it's it's not like there's this probationary period, right? Or it's not that we have some inferior status or a lesser status. God's not like, well, here's the real family and then... And we'll let these guys over here too, right? Like the riffraff over here. No, no, there's full inclusion. So my youngest daughter, many of you know this, my youngest daughter's adopted. Uh, we've had her since the day that she was born, but biologically she's distinct from all other mem- members uh, within our family. So let me ask you, is Eliana only semi-McDonald? Right? Is she only kind of uh, McDonald? Is she uh, sort of ours? No. Right? She shares the same rights and the same privileges and has the same access to Becky and I than my other kids do. And, and one of the things that's kind of fascinating about Ellie is that physically she looks 
a lot like us. In fact, uh, people that don't know that she's adopted will often comment on uh, similar traits and physical characteristics that she shares either with Becky or I. And a lot of times we'll just kind of laugh and just, you know, because it's true. It's like, yeah, she she has uh, my eyes. They're not really mine, but they're the same, you know, and, and we just kind of chuckle about that. But every once in a while, uh, we'll, we'll eventually share with people, yeah, it's crazy that she looks like that, but she's adopted. So we're at a swim meet a couple months ago, and, and there's a family from a different club that we've seen at different meets, and we're getting to know, and things of that nature. And so they were talking just amazed at how much she looked like us, and uh, all this stuff, which I always think is fascinating. If you look at the twins, it's like, man, that's, that's like, a, uh, like a clone type thing. So Ellie's like not even close compared to that. But, but, but they're talking about that, and finally Becky just says, yeah, it's crazy because she's actually adopted. And, and they kind of like, they couldn't believe she said that. And they're like, why would you say that? That's so mean. Right? They thought that Becky was joking about it. Uh, but in reality, it's like, no, we're saying that because it's true. She's actually adopted. Um, but, but as I think about that exchange, I, I, and I've just reflected, I'm like, that, that's really what adoption in Jesus looks like. It, it's not that I take on a particular ethnicity or a particular physical appearance per se. But it is that I take on the character and the nature and the privilege and the position in Christ. We look like Jesus, right? That's the hope that we have. And that's what Jesus is saying to Mary in this moment. That is the hope of eternity. And then finally this, look at verse 18. Uh, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he said these things to her. And with Mary, what we see is we see our proclamation of Jesus. Right? Mary is deployed and sent out by Jesus to proclaim Jesus to the disciples and to others. <clears throat> she's announcing, she's saying, I, I've seen him, I, I know him. And what she's also saying is, I want you to know him. Now, some of you, right, some of you are watching this, uh, not because you're a part of Faith Church. You're, you're watching this because you had a friend or a family member or a neighbor or a coworker or whoever it was that invited you. Uh, maybe they pressured you. Maybe they straight up told you, hey, you need to watch this. Uh, Rusty, if you're watching, bro, props to you that you made it this far. Okay, I've got people in my life that that's true of as well. Okay, but, but, but they want you to watch this. Because like Mary, what they want you to know is what they know in Jesus, right? That, that, that's, that's what's going on here, right? They want you to know that Jesus saves, that Jesus restores, that Jesus redeems, that Jesus reconciles from sin, that the hope of their life is rooted in the person and the work of Jesus. That's why they've asked you to watch this. And if you've endured to this point, uh, this point praise God for that. Uh, and we're thankful and hopefully you'll endure uh, to the end. But here, this stunning encounter, a better reality. Jesus is our eternal Savior. Now, these next two scenes will move much uh, more quickly through. Uh, there's not as much of the symbolism that's unfolding here that requires as much explanation. So look at scene three, verses 19 through 23. Here's what we see unfolding in this third scene. A surprise visit, and that visit is life in the Spirit. And here's what it's revealing to us, that God's still with us. Right? God is still with us. Now, we know Jesus is about to depart, but, but, but he's going to tell the disciples, hey, uh, God's still going to be with you. So uh, verse 19, it's now the evening of that day. It's still the same day, but it's the evening of that day, the first day of the week. The door is being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And then I love this. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Like, how'd that play out? Right? Like he just walked through the wall? Did, did he just suddenly appear? Uh, what, what, did he like sneak in and wait till no one was watching? He's like, oh, I can get in. Like, all we know is that he wasn't there. And then bam, he, he's there. 
Uh, and so he says to them, peace be with you. Uh, you jokingly, I'd like to think, because they were losing their minds, although I think what he does next actually uh, is, is tied to what he's saying. In verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, probably the most uh, understated uh, verse in all the Bible. Uh, Jesus said to them, again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. And when he said this, this is really interesting, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So, so you, you've got Jesus showing up, all right, the surprise visit, and what he's uh, helping the disciples to understand is life in the Spirit. And so as he shows up, no, notice that he starts to show him his, his hands and his side, and it's not simply an act to identify himself. He's not saying, hey, look, I'm the real guy. I think that his demonstration of showing these things to, to, to the disciples is the very motivation and the root of the peace that he offers to them. Right? There's peace because Jesus has suffered and died for sin. That's what's going on right here. That's why there's peace. Right? Uh, Isaiah 53 uh, speaks about the punishment that brought us peace is upon him. Jesus dies the death that we deserve and we're given the peace of God. It's absolutely insane. But this surprise visit, life in the Spirit, two things I want to just highlight real quick. First of all, in the same way that Mary is sent out, Jesus is now commissioning the disciples. Look at verse 21. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. He sends the disciples out, and he does so in the same manner that the Father has sent Jesus out. Here, here's what I think is so interesting, right? God doesn't ask us to do things that he himself has not first done. Right? So God's not telling you and I to be missional until he's been missional. Right? Jesus went and, and told the world about himself, and now he's commissioning us to go and do the same. Now, if, if you're a part of Faith Church, you know that after every service, right, whether we actually get to gather together or it's just happened digitally, after every service, uh, what we say at the end of our service is, Faith Church, you're loved and you're sent. Right? Now, the loved is our position in Jesus. The sent is our purpose in Jesus, that we're commissioned. And this is what Jesus is saying to the disciples here. You're to live loved and sent. And I'm asking you, church, will you live loved and sent, particularly in a time that needs to see the hope of Jesus and the gospel. We're commissioned by Jesus. Notice also this, verse 22, that we're new creations in Jesus. So here is more of this symbolism. Verse 22, it says that Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And I say that we're new creations in Jesus because that word breathe, that's the same word that shows up in Genesis 2, 7, where God breathed life into the nostrils of Adam. And so there's this creative work that's going on with Jesus and the disciples. And specifically what Jesus is doing is he's creating a missional entity, the church, right? What we were just talked, talking about, commissioned to go and tell the world about Jesus, right? So there's that, that creative element. But the other side of this that I think is so important for us is when Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, I'm still with you. Jesus is not still with us, but God is still with us. In the same way that God was present in the garden and present in the tabernacle, present in the temple, how Jesus was with his disciples. Now the Spirit of God is in the people of God. And what this means, loved ones, is that God has never left us alone. In fact, you could even argue that because the Spirit lives in us, he's more with us than anyone else at any point in time. Now you think about Moses, right? You had to go into the to the tabernacle. You had to go into the tent to be in the presence of God. 
in the way that the presence of God dwells inside of us right now. I mean, what an incredible gift to know that God is with us. This is what it is to live life in the Spirit. Yeah, it's a surprise visit, but it's pointing us to life in the Spirit, and we have hope because God is still with us. Here's the final thing. Look at verse 24 through 31. Uh, This actually happens eight days later. Well, it begins uh, before that, Uh, but we have a second appearance, and we see a life of belief. A second appearance, a life of belief, and really captures this idea right here in this final scene that we live by faith. So here's what's really interesting. Look at verse 24. Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Like, what was he doing? Where was he? They're all hiding in a room behind a locked door, and he's just out running an errand. I mean, maybe he short straw to go get groceries. We don't know. But could you imagine coming back from that being Thomas? Like, walks in the door, and everyone's like, Hey, bro, you missed it. Jesus stopped by, right? And he's like, no. Yeah, no, he was here. And he's probably thinking, y'all are just playing a cruel joke. And they're like, no, for real, he was here. And he showed us his hands and his side, which might be why Thomas says, right? They say, we've seen the Lord. And he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand to his side, I'll never believe. He's like, you guys are cruel. I'm not buying this. And for eight days... Right? There's the, they, they, they don't see him. Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. There is third time he says this, right? pointing back to the peace that we have because of Jesus' death in our place. And then he goes right at Thomas. Right? This, is, this, is, this is Jesus' engagement with our unbelief right here. He goes right at Thomas's doubt. And, and notice what he says. He says, put your finger here. And see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. And here's the exhortation. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So he's telling Thomas, hey man, don't disbelieve, believe. You got to believe. And I wonder for how many of us today do we need that same exhortation. To not disbelieve, but to believe. And here's what you have to keep in mind. Jesus isn't asking anybody to check their mind at the door. There's a clear connection that's unfolding here uh, between evidence and faith, right? So there's no such thing as blind faith or this empty faith, right? Or or, or uninformed faith. No, there's evidence. But we, you and I have to realize we're just not going to get to see Jesus in the way that Thomas saw Jesus. At some level, if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to live a life of faith. Because this is what it is to live for and to follow Jesus. We live by faith. We live by faith in God. We live uh, in faith that eternity uh, is better. We live uh, by the faith that Jesus is enough. We live by the faith that he's going to restore and vindicate uh, and redeem us. And, and part that hasn't happened in totality. So part of this is, right, we're still looking ahead to when that is completed. So there's some waiting and trusting that's required. But here's what I would say to you, skeptic, to you doubter to you non-believer, that you need to know that if you are willing, Jesus will engage your unbelief. He goes right at Thomas's unbelief. He'll go right at your unbelief. But you have to know he's going to do it on his terms, not on your terms. You don't tell Jesus how he goes about it. He's going to tell us how he goes about it. You are invited to come. You are invited to believe. And Jesus will address and engage your unbelief. But you must first come. 
And that's really where this ends. Look at verse 30 and 31. It's our invitation to believe in Jesus. And John just tells us this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You're invited to believe in Jesus. You might say, what is it to believe in Jesus? It's that you and I trust in his finished work to save us from our sin. That's really the crux of the matter here. That Jesus' death in your place, in my place, is what saves us from the wrath of God that we deserve when we sinned against God. Right? So when I'm trusting in Jesus, I'm not believing that I can earn God's favor. That, that's impossible. I'm trusting that Jesus has earned it in my place and he restores me to God, makes me right with God in a way that I never could be because of my sin. The only way that we're going to be restored to God is by trusting in Jesus' death in our place. So not only do we trust in his finished work, secondly, um, part of believing in Jesus is we surrender our life to him. And it's not just this intellectual assent. It's not just this sense of, oh yeah, I know that. It's a complete surrender of our life to God. Saying, God, you are in control. I am not. And so I'm surrendering my life to you. I'll just say, right, so much of our life has been upended in these last number of weeks. What's normal and expected and routine has been anything but lately, has it not? And I think a lot of this is really a helpful reminder for us that all of us are mortal, that all of us will one day die. And the reason we die is because sin has entered into the world and death will come for us all. Now, for those of you that are in Jesus, you don't have to fear that death because all that death is, is entrance into the better reality, into eternity. But for those of you outside of Jesus, none of those benefits apply. Because for those outside of Jesus, you're not covered by the righteousness of Jesus. You're outed and exposed. And you fall under the judgment and the wrath of God. And so for those outside of Jesus, this permanent alienation, this permanent separation should cause great grief, should cause great consideration. But it doesn't have to. Because just like John is telling us, you are invited to believe and in believing to be restored and reconciled and redeemed to God. And if you've listened this far and, and, and you have questions, I'd encourage you to reach out to the person that, that, that invited you to watch this. If you stumbled across this, you can uh, go to our, our website, faithchurchrr.org, and communicate with one of the pastors. Be happy to do that. Uh, if, if you know other believers, just say, hey, how do I get right with Jesus? How do I give my life to Jesus? And if you find yourself in this, that place wrestling at any level, don't do anything else before you settle this issue. And so I'm going to pray. Uh, I would encourage you, if you find yourself wrestling in any way, shape, or form uh, to be right with God, maybe you would pray with me on this. Uh, but let's just go to the Lord. And if you're struggling, if you're waffling, if you're, if you're like, man, I, I know I need Jesus. I, I don't even know where to start. Maybe you just start by saying this, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I know that I've rebelled against you and I know that I deserve death and separation. But Jesus, I thank you that you've come to restore. God, I pray you would forgive me of my, my sin. I pray you'd cleanse me of my unrighteousness and that you would cause me to love you, to walk with you and to live my life for you. God, I pray that you would come into my life, that you would have full control, and I surrender all that I am to you. Help me to live for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen. If you prayed that, we would encourage you to tell someone about that, uh, whether it be a friend or a family member, you can communicate with us at the church. Uh, For those of you uh, who are believers, I know it's a different Easter Sunday, but it is still a great Easter Sunday because Jesus is no less victorious. Uh, He is no less alive. Uh, Sin and death are no less conquered. None of that has changed. So know that I love you. Faith Church, you are loved and you are sent. Happy Resurrection Sunday.